I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. is Langston Kong. He's a shamanic practitioner specializing in emotional clearing and radical transformation, and he's the author of Deep Liberation, Shamanic Tools for Reclaiming Wholeness in a Culture of Trauma, which offers practices to help us navigate and transmute the great challenges and insanity of our time into the medicine for personal, communal, and world healing. So welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So in the book, you write that you were a very sensitive kid growing up. And I was also a very sensitive and also deeply traumatized kid. And for me, it took many, many years of intense inner work and at the same time learning to navigate the world as someone who never really felt like I quite fit in to eventually, you know, turn some of that poison into medicine, which is a metaphor that I love. And so I just loved this book. And I related so much with your story and this work of deep liberation. Thank you. Yeah, I was a very sensitive kid. And I think that was compounded by a transition that my family made when I was about six years old, where we moved from like a really richly diverse and interesting neighborhood in Washington Heights 
to a predominantly white neighborhood where I was sort of like the one black kid in the school I was going to for a long time. And so I think my natural proclivity towards sensitivity combined with that sort of shock of the sudden racialization of my experience that I didn't really have context for definitely sent me very inward into myself. And, and it took a long time to sort of repair those bridges that would allow me to come back into the, into the present moment really and feel like I had full access to my emotional capacity and, and my sort of abilities to be in the present and make choices from that place versus feeling sort of trapped inwardly within myself. So how did you end up coming to this healing work and what did it take for you to make that inner transition? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, it's, it's funny when you ask the question, how did you come to the healing work? It's like, when did I come to the healing work? It, it all sort of melds together in that I was always a person who, partly because of that sensitivity we're speaking about, was very aware of the pain and emotions of others. You know, partly because of some, you know, biographical trauma in my environment, I was very hypervigilant to others' feelings and emotions. And so when there was someone who was in pain or upset or being isolated or sort of bullied or exiled by other kids, I always felt like I needed to be the one to go help them. <laughs> Probably because I felt pretty isolated and exiled myself on some level inside, even though it was easy for me to sort of adapt and adjust than most. So as I grew older, the people who I was drawn to be friends with were often the kids who were also more sensitive and often more creative and, and more expressive in different ways and weirder. And what I came to realize is those kids who were so bright in so many ways, like, like not just, I don't just mean brightness in terms of intelligence, but just so radiant in the truth of who they were and their own uniqueness also tended to be the kids who were struggling with a lot of serious mental health issues in terms of depression or bipolar disorder or self-harm or other ways of experiencing pretty intense suffering. And what I came to see during that time, this is really in, in middle school and high school a lot, was that the adults didn't really seem to have the answers to these issues that I was experiencing and my friends were experiencing. That the only answer, and this was like one of the better answers, was therapy. And even then, mostly the therapists seemed to go pretty quickly to prescribing medication. There's nothing wrong with medication, but there wasn't a really giving these kids tools to go deeply inward and see what was the root of the symptoms they were experiencing as this intense pain and alienation and disconnect versus just trying to manage the symptoms. And if that didn't quite work, just thinking, oh, we just need another medication. And on top of that, the parents, you know, obviously need to be in a lot of pain too and were managing their own challenge and issues and not always able to be an adult in the way that allows kids to just be kids. So that really stuck with me as a question in my heart of why is this the case? And I got, I got a little bit of a um, political framework too in middle school because there was this wonderful teacher, Mr. Cohen, who would meet with us at 
like 6 a.m. in the morning before school started and read countercultural books like from the 60s, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with us. And that gave me this framework to start to see these challenges my friends were facing as not just solely about a personal issue, but to see this larger system that seemed to be, you know, crushing my friends in its effort to make them conform to a certain ethos of productivity at all costs, productivity at the expense of the soul, even at the high school level. And so those questions of why is this the case? Why is no one talking about this larger system or in a way that seems like it has traction and can actually help to create change stuck with me? And I graduated from college, I ended up going to film school actually, and I graduated from college, you know, I, it was the height of the recession. I had a ton of mental health issues of my own I was dealing with and also chronic health issues of autoimmune disorders. And I was in the hospital like four times a year and I was really struggling to get a job. And so I decided, okay, it's time to actually commit to my spiritual practice in a different way because I'm sick of these issues. I was, at the time, I, I, when, when I did have jobs, I was working a lot on film sets, which were like, you know, 72 hour days a lot of the times and, and just, you know, not great food and, and, and not great emotional environments necessarily. And I just realized I needed to reorient myself from trying to live my passion in the world as a filmmaker to actually focusing on my mental and emotional health and well-being and getting a job that was more stable. And so I just started working at this really simple data entry job. And that gave me time to start exploring a lot of different spiritual perspectives, a lot of them through podcasts, actually. It was kind of like the peak, that initial peak of the podcast scene just becoming a sort of mainstream thing about like 10 years ago or so. And what happened was I began to start to find my way to traditions where I'd find snatches of answers to the questions I had about why the world was the way it was. And the place where I really started to find big answers was actually shamanism, particularly one podcast by you know, one of my primary teachers today, Christina Pratt, of Why Shamanism Now, where she was talking about how Part of the reason she saw as the root cause of a lot of the dysfunction in our current cultural landscape was because of this abandonment of ritual, and specifically the abandonment of the ritual tending of these thresholds of birth, initiation into adulthood, eldership, and death. So there is no longer this sense of children just being born, having elders tending their purpose, divining with the mothers what they were coming here to do, and then making sure they had the support that they needed to do that thing, and then have a name that would remind them of that thing when they reached the age where it was time for them to start to feel into that energy who they are. And there was no longer true adults and elders that could come together and take teens out when they just first started becoming teens. So adolescence wasn't this long, protracted thing, and they could be supported in dropping their family of origin baggage and reminded of the essence of their purpose they came here to live and reconnected to a lineage and a visceral relationship with their ancestors so where there was this greater sense of belonging 
that transcended just their parents and immediate family so then they could return to their village as true adults that could bring their gifts and service to their community and their community would continue to tend and serve their ability to move into and grow their gifts so they could live a life of heart and meaning and then eventually become elders who had true wisdom to share with younger people and eventually die in a good way knowing they had really done what they came here to do and that death being tended in a good way so they could become ancestors and every generation wouldn't have to reinvent the wheel because that wisdom that had been collected over the course of a human life would be being transmitted again to the next generations through that living relationship with the ancestors. And so as I began to feel into these concepts, I started to see deep patterns of dysfunction in my own life. And I eventually pursued a shamanic healing after I had a kind of deep initiatory experience where I've been practicing with a spiritual and magical group for about three years. And it was the first time in my life where I was really, you know, meeting every full moon to do work to magical work together and we were training in our sort of psychic and magical skills and it was a really strict ritual setting and i think that structure because i'm a i'm a double pisces so i'm very you know watery and unstructured sometimes and that that intense ritual tradition and structure that i was part of at that time i think opened me up and helped my helping spirits to see wait he's ready he's ready now and at the time, I was also doing a lot of inner emotional work with a process called inner relationship focusing that was sort of starting to just begin to help me to mend the gap between my ability to fully express my emotions and or at least just first to feel them, to really feel them and not feel so disconnected and dissociated from my body. And the combination of those two things, intense ritual practice and this deep inner work that I was just starting on, I think resulted in my helping spirits deciding to sort of shake up my life a bit. And I had this really intense dream where this animal helping spirit landed on my chest. And every time it landed there, there were these sort of like parasites or biting things or ticks that would fall off of it and, and be like wounding me in some way. And so at the, at the time, my teacher in the dream was in bed with me in a forest. And I turned to her and asked her, can I tell this to go away? And she's like, yes, but ask for its name first. And so I did. It gave me its name. And then I woke up thinking, okay, what do I need to do to help my helping spirit? My helping spirit is covered in parasites. And when I actually journeyed with the help of the spiritual group I was working with at the time to that spirit, they just laughed in my face. They're kind of a trickstery spirit a bit. And they said, you idiot, like I'm showing you what's wrong with you. I don't need help. Like you're the one that needs help. You're covered in these sort of energetic parasites. And so that led me to book my first shamanic healing session to deal with that issue. And the first person I went to just said, this is just your stuff. It's not like some, you know, big entity that's affecting you or some you know, horrible ancestral curse. It's just your stuff that's getting in the way. And at the root of a lot of the chronic health issues you're having too. And so I was like, okay. And they were like, do you want us, me to rip it out? And I said, okay, because I didn't really know what I was doing at that point. And so they did, they just ripped it out. And my symptoms dramatically improved for two weeks and then came back much, much worse. And so I knew like there was something to what was happening, but I needed more help. And so 
I eventually found my way to another practitioner and that practitioner was able to describe for me not just that it was my stuff, but when and where in my life each layer of these patterns had formed. And she's able to see the same thing the other shaman had seen without me even telling her about it, but describe in detail sort of the emotional and psychodynamic aspects of the pattern that was quote unquote my stuff and how it related to my sort of spirit as well. So both the, that intersection between the physical body, the emotional body, the spiritual body, and the mental body all coming together in a very articulated, clear, detailed way. And so I knew I wanted to continue working with this person and study with them. And at the time it was 2011. So I was like, wow, the world might end, you know, next year. <laughs> and so I decided to invest in this five-year training program. I'm not even sure if I realized the time that it was five years right away in becoming a spiritual adult that felt like an answer to the questions of that question I had in my heart of why is there so much pain and suffering and no adults that are able to help kids who are feeling that way. And over the course of those five years, more and more, I began to realize that it was actually a really helpful vehicle for me to begin affecting healing for other people as well. And I was eventually asked to teach the teachings as one of the first people in, in 30 years that have been asked to teach those teachings of that five-year training program as well. And so I just began more and more to listen to my helping spirits and work with my helping spirits that I had forged an intimate relationship with on behalf of others. And the first work I was doing was just deep inner energetic and emotional work of the deep liberation process with people that really felt like part of my unique genius. Because I had had to struggle so much with my own gap between my ability to feel my emotions and express them in real time versus like weeks later or versus when I felt totally overwhelmed and was having all sorts of physical symptoms to really be able to just be in the dance of my emotions in real time and allow them to move my heart and then action have been really hard won for me over those years of training. And so I had a gift for helping people who were struggling with that relationship with their inner life and their emotions and their body to, to move into a place of intimacy and relationship with their inner experience that was very visceral and tangible. And so that's in essence what led me to be a healer because unlike when I was younger and all I could do is really listen to people that were in pain and try to be there for them, I suddenly had tools that I felt were able to work much more directly at the root because I had walked a lot of the path of my own healing and that's obviously a path I'm still on. I felt I had a place I could lead others down that was territory understood. And that just felt really nourishing for me to be able to assist people with what had been such a poison in my life when I first picked it up and when I first experienced it, to now be able to help other people in a similar situation. That's such a wonderful, wonderful story. And it heartens me so much to hear that you found something so comprehensive and valuable in your life so early. Back when I was uh, going through my desperation, you know, to heal myself, it was much more of an experimental process. Because mm. 
the people that I was encountering who were also suffering and desperately seeking answers, we were finding various answers and we were experimenting with them, but we didn't have a comprehensive way of really fully integrating them and making sense of our lives out of it. So, uh-huh. but one thing that we did have was this empathy for other people who were suffering and, mm. and also desperate to find ways to, to heal and, and find our place in the world and make sense of, of all the, the kind of inner and outer chaos that we were trying to navigate. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, in the oversimplification of my story, I don't want to make it seem like it was too linear. I definitely was very experimental at well. There was years, even when I was in that really strict tradition, there were years that I was just going to any ritual I could go to, any random class or workshop I could go to, and just experimenting with anything I could find. But I think what helped me to, I've been really blessed with, with teachers who were deeply authentic and of integrity, and I think what helped me guide me on that journey towards that, you know, searching for that clear, pure source of true eldership that is flowing in the world more, I think, now than perhaps in other times recently. There was this learning. The more that I began to really understand the logic of my inner space, and, and not just my inner space, but all inner spaces, this, this understanding that's really a core part of the way I work now that the more we can bring our compassionate curiosity to whatever we encounter inside of us, the more it will open and expand and shift and grow and transform and point us towards forward movement. That principle gave me this sense of truth that I could then take to any system I was exploring and studying and see at its essence, does this system respect this truth that you know, everything inside of us deserves, in a sense, a friendly hearing. That even the wounds we carry wouldn't know that they were wounds unless they also knew what it felt like to be whole and healthy. And does the system respect that truth and that principle of, that I find is what allows my own inner experience to open up to me? And that was hugely helpful in sort of sorting out what was maybe more, you know, bullshit, to put it politely, really, <laughs> versus actually teaching to the deep root that really were in service of liberation was really helpful for me because there is so much out there and, and so much that's really built on very shaky foundations. Yeah. So it sounds like you connected with the essence of this whole process and what your actual inner journey was and what these different healing and spiritual practices and traditions we're pointing at, we're actually offering. And I love the way you related that to recognition of the wound, that you have to have some connection with the part of you that isn't wounded to be able to recognize the wound. Otherwise, we live in a kind of ubiquitous state of just being wounded, kind of like fish in water. Yes. And I guess another way I'd put that is that the part of us that isn't wounded is the part that's wounded. And that sounds very gnomic and, you know, <laughs> like gobbledygook. But what I mean when I say that is a very simple truth that, like, just like we don't know when we're tired, we, don't, we wouldn't know what tired was unless we knew also what it felt like when we were vital 
and healthy and energized. It's the same way with any wound inside of us. It wouldn't know that something was off, that something was wrong, that something felt fragmented or in pain if it didn't also know what it felt like to be whole and to be in the flow of the living process that we are. So it's not just that there's like the wounded parts and the parts that feel really deeply healthy and well, but more that it's all the same, like the wounded parts are also the parts of us who are trying to remind us what it might feel like to be at a different level of health and well-being. And that's where their pain is coming from, being in that gap. And so I think what we describe as feeling wounded is often the feeling of being in a relationship of struggle with our wounds where we're exiling them or trying to push them down or control them or in a relationship of identification with our wounding where our wounds are sort of hijacking us or the parts of us that have been cut off from the living process that we are and have become fragmented or dissociated a bit we unconsciously identify with them and then we're seeing life through the lens of this one small part of us versus through the fullness of who we are and that's very painful and so when we can be in the fullness of who we are and step into relationship with these fragmented selves that then allows us to give them the space and witnessing and the compassion and curiosity for them to actually share with us a vision of greater health and well-being and that we can move towards together whereas when we're exiling our wounds or when we're identified with our wounds there's not a possibility of deep relationship there that can create change and transformation right the medicine is embedded within the trauma within the poison itself they're mm -hmm. in inextricably related and if we're either overly identifying with it or pushing it away we're going to miss that it sort of reminds me of a dream i had last night I had I had a, mm, I, had a <laughs> I had a wild wild night of dreams last night but there was one mm. interesting very short segment where I was at this huge sort of event slash party and I walked into this room that was sort of like a maze in a way in that when I walked into it all of a sudden I realized that I was trapped in this room and I was looking around the room and the walls were totally sealed. There was no way out and it was moving and I was in the middle of it. But then I noticed when I looked in the other direction, I could barely see out of the corner of my eye that there was an opening. And so then I realized all I had to do was actually turn and move in the opposite direction. And there was the way I came in, which I was able to then walk out. But as long as I was looking in this other direction, the direction that the room seemed to be moving in that I was kind of mesmerized by, I felt completely trapped. Wow, that's a powerful dream. I love that. And so valuable too, that these like visceral experiences that our body gives us, you know, in our dream life, that that's not just about like something on an intellectual level, like an idea or concept. Like when you say it in words, it can sound very simple, but so precious to have that visceral feeling in your body of what it might be like to when you feel that sense of being sealed in this room to try to turn to see another perspective or to move in a different direction than you're currently moving. And I also consider myself to be 
extremely fortunate in that I was very, very blessed to have these powerful revelatory experiences with every new thing that I encountered. So I would get a taste, a really solid taste of the essence of what was at the core of it. So that even though I was living in the midst of a chaotic and very messy and screwed up sense of self, I had touched that place that, mm. that was mm -hmm. inside myself and yet it was also available everywhere and that I shared with everybody else. So even though I went through a very long, long, grueling process of suffering and trying to navigate, you know, that whole dynamic, I always carried that deep, essential experience. Mm -hmm. And so even in the deepest darkness and, and sense of despair and confusion and chaos, there was always this even just the tiniest, tiniest seed of knowing that there was something else. There was something at the core of it that I couldn't really completely lose, no matter how far into despair I fell. And, and over and over and over again, I fell into great despair and depression. And I saw people around me experiencing the same thing. And yet we all still had this deep essential recognition inside, like a seed. And sometimes we had it as a full-blown experience, but often it got overwhelmed and eclipsed by the, just the raging chaos and confusion of our lives and the world around us. Yes, absolutely. I really appreciate you sharing that. I think that's so important that we, you know, hold those experiences of our essence, not as these like peak experience that we have to keep like struggling to get back to through you know different types of ritual or plant hallucinogens or whatever it is that we're using to get back to that peak state of experience but rather instead as a truth we've now experienced that we can hold and change our life and our actions to orient towards that truth being true now that we felt it viscerally in our body that truth of our essence and so okay so if that's the truth of who i am how do i need to change how i'm walking through the world i think you really beautifully described that experience and i think we're in a time where those types of experiences and even like a level of safety to be able to rest into that truth of your essence is the pleasure of your being at the core of who you are is really under attack and threat. I was recently in a ritual where these energies came through me that was very much felt like to me the disdaining grandmothers. <laughs> that's, that's how I described them. The, the, like the shorthand I found was the grandmothers of disdain, which has this very positive force, this force that was just frowning and, and they had their like chest up and out and like sort of stepping back in this look of disgust, this sort of snarl of disgust. And there were the grandmothers who said like, no more, like no further, like not on my watch. There were some patterns of collapse I was looking at and, and the despair of this year, you know, I think for a lot of us and with just all the, the stress of all the things that have been going on and the isolation and the overwhelm during the pandemic and the other events of 2020. And, they were just saying, you know, get up off the ground, get up off the floor, pick up your machete and act like you know how to use it. This is not, this is, this is not a time when you want to be a casualty 
on the battlefield that you can't afford to be a casualty and we can't afford you to be a casualty, that we need everyone working to hold that sense of their essence and hold the line against those forces, those energies, those ideologies that would seek to divorce us from our own essence, that would seek to tell us that they could tell us who we are better than we could know ourselves, or that they could meet the needs of that pain or that ache we feel through you know, products or services that we could buy versus helping us to learn the technologies that could allow us to live connected to our essence. And there's this real sense of wanting me and others to wake up and see the level of systematic attack on those faculties that allow us to have those types of experiences and to approach you know life in a sense as a battlefield where those faculties are constantly being under threat that we're not in a neutral playing field and and yet not a battlefield in terms of metaphor of like we are at war we have to fight something but more there's this grant morrison quote from the invisibles i love that says we lied we are not at war this is a rescue mission. And it was sort of that sense they were guiding me toward, like this is a rescue mission that we are on right now to rescue the technologies, to rescue our relationship and our connection, or at least the tools and the techniques that allow us to step into tending the relationship and connections that we're already all part of always, that we can't step away from even if we wanted to, but we can abuse and exploit instead of being in right relationship with to all living things, to the archetypal realms, to the conversations with the gods that are always wanting to happen as we walk through our day, to the conversations of the vast multiplicity of selves inside of us that are always wanting to happen if we let it versus the tightly controlled version of self that we can become identified with because it allows us to be productive or just to, to shield ourselves from pain around us. And just for some reason, when you're talking about your experience, your essence and your work to remember that amidst the despair, just really, really reminded me of that experience I had recently and that awareness that despair isn't just a personal issue, that it's, it's actually, in a sense, a real result of systematic assaults on us in a certain way, or it can be. And I'm not even trying to like demonize despair or hopelessness as a bad thing because I think to, to really allow us to feel those emotions can be a wonderful thing if we can then flow into the next emotion that comes out of that and let the grief we feel show us what we truly value and what is truly worth living for. But I think so often we're sort of cornered into that despair place without any tools or containers to feel the grief of that despair in a way that allows us to flow into a greater sense of who we really are and what we are here to do. Which in a sense, another byproduct of abandonment of ritual. And what you're talking about is, is such a natural thing. I loved what you're saying and it brought up memories of a number of different things that I encountered very early on many years ago. One, you talked about picking up the machete and one of the earliest ritual spiritual practices that I learned was from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition of embodying the divine mind, which is the representation of like a fiery, almost demon-like entity carrying a sword in one hand 
and a skull cup filled with blood and wearing a necklace of severed heads. And I remember after finishing this training of learning this and embodying this practice, walking around out in the world, imagining this figure, this fiery figure of the divine mind over my head with the sword in hand and literally severing all of the illusions that I was seeing out in the world around me that bombard us in a kind of oppressive way. And if we don't have an anchor into our essential being, our essential nature, it's just so easy to get overwhelmed by them and lost in them. Absolutely. Yeah, I so appreciate you sharing that image of that wrathful deity. I love that image of you walking to the streets as this wrathful deity severing illusions. That's beautiful. And I think that's so important, especially, you know, for everyone right now. I think that that ability to step into destruction and service of life is really important and powerful because there's so much destruction that's not in service of life right now that I think it's easy to think of destruction as something we don't want to step into because we don't want to replicate those harms we see and not realize that to not use our power, even our power to destroy, our capacity to kill, is to abuse our power. Because all power is meant to be used to some extent, to used hopefully in service of life, but to be used, to allow the love that we are to flow through us into action, which I think might be one definition of power. And I think with that wrathful imagery and this idea of these like, you know, illusions we need to pierce through, there's this real importance of recognizing that our process, you know, I think one thing that's really important to me in writing Deep Liberation was that it was not just going to be a self-help book about how I become more comfortable, how I, you know, deal with the pain that I'm in. That's part of it. You know, that's definitely a happy side effect of the Deep Liberation process and the book that it will help you to form a new relationship with your trauma and with the things in your life that have caused you heartbreak and pain. But it's important to understand that the teachings that I wrote this book of, first of all, I should say, I don't consider them my teachings, that these teachings come out of a lineage that I'm part of, which was founded by Christina Pratt of the Last Mass Center for Shamanic Healing and was cultivated within the container of the last mass community, this community of volunteers who have gone to these teachings and have stepped up into shared leadership by council to keep the teachings in the world and to make sure the retreats are happening, you know, every year and practicing and sharing with each other their process in this work, in the deep liberation work. And so these teachings that I'm talking about are not just coming through me, they're coming through my practice of these teachings over the last 10 years in community that came out of the you know visionary and initiatory experiences of a contemporary shaman and what that means is that these practices are rooted not just in lineage but in a lineage of shamanic practice and when i use the word you know it's a big conversation using the word shaman and why i use the word shaman but but one aspect of how i look at the shaman of course outside of solely the traditional word that arise from specific peoples, when that term became applied cross-culturally by Mircea spending some of his academic capital to show the world that 
practitioners who were embodying this certain role that you might use the term shaman to apply to were not crazy, were not hucksters, but actually had rich traditions of value for our human heritage to share with the world. That work that he did of that role, how I would define it, is someone who is working to tend balance between the individual and themselves and their own soul, the individual and their family, you know, and the family and their community, and the community and the spirit world and their environment, which are one and the same. There's not like some distinction between the natural world and the spirit world. It's all just the world, you know, that the community must stay in right relationship with for their survival, which is much better understood before a culture of, you know, globalization and capitalism and mass consumerism when you actually are literally dependent on your natural resources of your local environment for your survival then you want to stay in balance with it and you want to make sure that environment stays healthy and so you can stay healthy and so what i'm trying to say in this long drawn out sentence is that these practices of deep liberation are not just about personal health and well-being but about in a world where there is such a big gap between where we could be as humanity, where we are meant to be in a sense as humanity, as part of this living organism of the earth and right relationship with it, tending the earth and actually in service to all other life in the earth versus where we are currently, that gap is so big we could throw you know, thousands and millions of shamans into that gap and it wouldn't create a difference. But what I believe can create a difference is if we are willing to engage our process and not just stop at where we're comfortable, where we feel, okay, now I've resolved some of my stuff and I can do what I want to do in my life. But if we're willing to be in this process for the long haul, to engage life as a teacher, to help us to weave ourselves back into relationship with all creation, to become what some, you know, prayers would say, you know, let me be a hollow bone, to become that experience of being able to be in conversation with the archetypal realms throughout our day and let ourselves feel what the moment is calling out of us specifically in each moment and then be able to respond effectively in real time in the moment versus just projecting onto the moment our fears and baggage from the past. I think in that way we can begin to tackle the collective issues of humanity, like systemic racism, like these deep ancestral trauma, like ways we're, you know, so disconnected from our environment that we see no problem with polluting it, that can allow us to take back our role as an essential part of the organism of the world, of the earth, in a way that allows us to live a life that has heart and meaning versus just feeling you know, sort of trapped in this endless machine, unsure if our actions really matter at all. And so that is one of my goals with this, with sharing this process and writing this book was not just to help people feel better, but to help us cultivate the resilience, the mental, physical, emotional, spiritual resilience to be able to move into some of these core cultural wounds of our time and bring medicine to those sites of fracture rather than waiting for our culture to be whole before we bring our medicine. Being the people who can, from within a fractured culture, be working within those fractures to mend them. And not just in that process having our own you know, stuff be so triggered that we become paralyzed and have to turn away 
or get at each other's throats as so often happens when we try to create change and that we have the tools to create change not just alone as rugged individuals but in community that's sustainable which I think is the only real way that we can create systemic change and we're working in community versus working as an individual. And that reminded me of what struck me when I first started reading this book of yours was how beautifully you articulate all of this and integrate this into such a beautiful, coherent whole of understanding and for me of really feeling what this wholeness is. And I love so much that in addition to writing so much about the need for our own personal inner healing work, you also connect it to the responsibility we have to help shape and reshape the world that we live in and the culture that, that as you described so beautifully, is so fractured and so dysfunctional and essentially insane in that classic Native American term, Watiko. Mm-hmm. And you also brought up the term archetypes. And I would love for you to talk about how you and the tradition that you are working within work with archetypes and what archetypes are and how they work with us. Because you say the archetypes are always trying to move through us and engaging through us in expressing our power into the world. And I would just love for you to flesh that out because one of the issues that I've always had difficulty with in my life was accepting my power. I always had this sense of, mm. that there was tremendous power inside of me, but I was terrified of it. And I know that part mm -hmm. of that terror was that I could use it in destructive and harmful ways, whether inadvertently or perhaps even deliberately in dark moments of rage and anger. But I was always terrified of that power that I could just feel was beyond the range of my comprehension even. So how do archetypes fit into all of that? And what do they mean in your tradition? And how do, we, how do they work within us? And how can we work with them? Yeah, so how I define archetypes is, and again, this is coming out of my lineage and my teachings, is as the source code of the universe. And this is actually, I find, very similar to how Jung talks about archetypes and his original definitions of them where he's really emphasizing that these are not like I think people so often I see this misquoted and misunderstand it that he explicitly says in archetypes in the collective unconscious that archetypes are not gods or fairy tales or what was so often termed archetypes in a lot of like you know archetypal psychology that those are already too culturally specific and sort of culturally manufactured that archetypes are these energies that are beyond humanity. They're not solely expressed through humanity. Whereas gods have a lot of protocol to them that comes out of the human cultures they arose in and are very culturally specific, archetypes are these forces that move through all living things, plants, animals, humans, everything, stones even. The archetypes are always moving through and in that way they help us to 
remember how to be part of the living process that the earth is. Like most things on the earth in a shamanic understanding don't have what I would call free will. And free will is not about agency. I believe everything has agency, but it's more about the ability to choose to co-create reality out of alignment with your essence, with who you actually are, with the energy you came here to be. Like a tree can't come here and choose not to be a tree. Whereas a human that came here to be something like that unique energy that is their purpose and their destiny that they chose to live in this lifetime and embody over the course of this lifetime can choose to turn away from that destiny, can choose to not live that destiny. And so I think that's one of the things that really defines humanity as unique in creation. And so archetypes are these forces that can help us to come back into alignment with our own essence of who we are and who we came here to be in a way that is in service to all living things. So healer, for example, is an archetype that's big in this process and that I work with a lot. And especially people are first starting out in the process, we work with healer a lot. And healer is not that energy that heals. Well, that's part of healer, sure. The energy that mends, heals, repairs. But that's kind of what's happening when, you know, the horse is already out of the barn, to speak metaphorically. Like, you've already fallen out of right relationship with healer. And then healer's coming in to help you to heal. But healer helps us to understand what we need to be in a state of health and well-being consistently. That's healer's unique medicine. And in terms of like one answer to what we need to be in a state of health and well-being is to be in the present moment, to not be stuck worrying about the past or dwelling on fears about the future and in that way spread out across time so illness and disease can move into us. We want to be in the present moment where we have the most power to create change. And so healer is this energy that helps us to come back into that sense of being in the present moment, able to choose. And so when we've come out of right relationship with that sense of being able to fully inhabit the present moment, we can go to healer to help us. And healer can help us so we can plug into that wisdom of healer to get experiences that maybe we didn't have growing up, that maybe archetypally we're supposed to have growing up from people in our life at different developmental stages that we never got. And so it seems unfair that then we're just stuck with that for the rest of our life. So I don't think that is the case. I think we can plug back into archetypes to feel into those missing pieces of sort of encoded information that we didn't get at different developmental stages to help us come back into alignment with those big energies. And so you mentioned your, your struggles with power, which I certainly have had in my life. I, I don't know if maybe there's anyone that hasn't had some struggles with power, whether it be more in the relationship of deficiency or excess. But, you know, we're so f***ed up around power right now currently in our culture that I think it's really essential that we are working with archetypes that have a deep understanding of power. And so for me, one of those archetypes is teacher, leader, sovereign. This being that holds this essence of what it is to be in a state of wholeness and balance and trust and commitment to process without attachment to outcome. What it is to lead in a way that involves not asserting power over others or controlling others, but simply to embody your own power in a way that encourages others to step into their power. 
And so for me, I think a lot of my own fears around power, and a lot of them were just as you described, like innately terrifying, you know, like beyond even what could be felt in one lifetime. It had to do a lot of my maleness, actually, and the ways I had seen men in my life and in the world abusing power and not wanting to replicate that same abuse. And so in a way, I shut down a lot of my own relationship as power as a way to try to avoid doing that kind of harm. And so teacher, leader, sovereign, and also the archetype of what I call true man helped me a lot with changing my relationship with power and also true woman. You know, when I use those words, true man and true woman, I'm, I'm not talking about what often gets thrown around as like the divine masculine and the divine feminine, because I believe that masculinity and femininity are social constructs, that their only usefulness is that we can deconstruct them and then maybe reconstruct them if we choose to again and again in new forms. But I don't believe there's any archetypal masculinity or archetypal femininity because they're completely false cultural constructs that vary depending on what culture you're in. Whereas archetypes are these things that transcend culture and time and space. And so when I talk about true man and true woman, I'm talking about this sort of archetypal, almost biological function of the womb that contains and protects and teaches and nourishes us and is continuously willing to grow and expand around us to protect our growth and expansion and our infinite uniqueness and beauty and genius. And then true man, and of course this also might be termed true mother, true father, is this energy that pulls us out of that safety of the womb into risk and tells us, you know, it's okay to feel whatever you're feeling. You can cry, you can get upset, even if you get hurt, it's okay, but I'm gonna be right here for you. I'll be protecting you, but you need to step into the risk. Like you need to get back on that bike and try again. I'm right here for you. I'm not going to make fun of you. I'm, I'm, I'm protecting you. You're safe, but you got to try again. You got to step into that risk because I'm here for you, supporting you and doing that. And this isn't gender based. Like every parent hopefully would be embodying true father and true mother at different times, regardless of their gender orientation. But this is about these archetypal energies that we all need as human beings in the course of our development to be in right relationship with our power. If you see power is in part the ability to bring our unique essence into expression and experience and action in the world and feel safe doing that. And so, you know, for me, I was struggling a lot with power actually when I was getting ready to write this book. And it, it was actually before I'd even spoken with, with my publisher and I'd just been, um, knowing there was something I needed to do that was more like a big writing project that was going to ask all of me. But I was still having so many struggles around writing that was actually part of what had even been one of my core focuses of coming into shamanic practice, of wanting to be a screenwriter, of wanting to feel my creativity like I had easy access to it and it was just flowing and I could be this expressive artist and feeling so stuck and stymied with that. And, you know, our creativity is so linked to our power and our sexuality and just our, the essence of our divinity, in a sense, our ability to express the multiplicity of who we are in the world. And so I've been working at this for years, like for maybe eight or nine years at this point when this was happening. And I was like, why is it still so stuck? Why isn't it working? Why don't I have easy access to my creativity? And what happened was I decided to journey to the descendants because I felt like, okay, if I really did work through this pattern, then I wrote a book. 
And so there should be a book in the future that can tell me how I got through this issue. And so I went to the descendants and asked them to show me how I got through this issue. And it was like weird. It felt like I was like some kind of like time bandit. Like there was like, it was like a rainy day and it felt like there are people looking for me and I had to be like hidden. And I met this descendant and they took me into this library and they showed me my book and multiple books on this shelf. And they gave it to me. And, and the part that I sort of read, you know, it wasn't really like reading words, more like feeling into about this answer to this question as I took this book into my heart had a lot to do with first of all killing my dream of being a filmmaker and accepting my innate worthiness which is like okay that's interesting at, at the time when you receive these kind of answers oftentimes I feel like am I just making this up is this just like silly is this really going to help me and so it's like okay I'll give it a try so I left that journey and I ended up doing this whole clearing of using the deep liberation process of going deep within to my body and I found this self who was this king who was really angry because he was stuck in this muck and he was trying to sort of rest away this some kind of like bobble that this creature that looked kind of like Gollum like was covered in muck had in this pile in this like dark mucky pile that he was holding and the king wanted this treasure that the creature had he was really angry at this creature he wanted this creature to like die and be gone and so i went in and i started feeling into both the creature and this king and what i found was that as i was willing to come into relationship with that creature who the king was so angry and disgusted by that creature began to reveal his grief to me. He let out this like long, piteous howl and he shared with me the sense of deep abandonment he had. And the king was like getting scared that I was even listening to this creature. He's like, don't listen to that, don't go there. You know, it was, it, was, it was threatening to him. But as I stayed with the golem, I asked him to show me what was he protecting that the king wanted. And he dug out this luminous pearlescent sphere because once I was no longer identified with that like righteous king trying to wrest this precious thing from this mucky part of me that was interfering with it, that was getting in the way of my creativity. Once I disidentified with that energy of that king, that righteous king, the creature could trust me. And so he showed me this sphere and he showed me how it could only be seen its true nature in darkness. So we followed the creature into this dark cave beneath the muck. And we saw how it reflected all these dreams on the wall of this great cavern. And I saw that the golem had been trying to protect sort of my dreams and my dreaming capacity. And the king began crying, seeing how he had in a sense been dishonoring and abandoning his dreams in this muck. That kind of muck was created of abandoned dreams in a sense. And he embraced the golem and they became this other version of teacher leader sovereign that was new for me that was kind of like this new version it wasn't a righteous king anymore it was something different it was a new level of the archetype of teacher leader sovereign that i could receive in my inner symbolic language that was the embodiment of my new relationship with that archetype once this healing had happened and i felt this new relationship with vision and so i realized the muck in part one of the big dreams I was dragging around that was kind of rotting inside of me was my dream of being a filmmaker. And I really needed to kill it as that journey to the descendants had shown me because I was still holding onto that dream as if it was real, but I wasn't taking any action on it. It wasn't where I was putting the majority of my focus and attention and resources in my life. So 
I rescued this capacity of dreaming from this muck. I washed out and cleaned this muck and I did this big fire ritual to let that dream officially die, which was really painful because I'd gone to school for this. I'd been carrying that dream for years. I had a lot of resources and friends and connections that could really allow me to make that dream real if I wanted to. But for whatever reason, at my essence, that was no longer my focus. That was no longer how I wanted to share my medicine with the world at this moment. And I had to honor that and make a conscious choice to sacrifice it and ask for what I wanted in return, which was a new relationship with my creativity. Because my filmmaking had just begun turning into this excuse to still deny my creativity, to still be like, oh, well, I can only express my creativity in this one way, so I don't get to use my creativity unless I'm doing it in this way that I never do. You know, and it was just becoming this one more trap. And so I rescued that new capacity, new relationship with my creativity and my power and within two weeks of me starting on this process of thinking about and writing this book, this offer for the book came to me from my publisher. They had seen some things I'd written online and were interested in if I had more. And it was just so quick. I think it's one of the really fascinating things about this deep inner work. I'm not one of those people who's like, you know, all the secret of the law of attraction. Like if you just think about it, your life will shape shift around you. There's so many forces in the world that are more than our ability to co-create as a human being that affect us systemically, especially as, you know, people of color. But it was amazing to me to see how when I got out of my own way, when I was willing to consciously sacrifice that which was incoherent with who I actually was now in my life and choose where I wanted my focus to be, the world did shift around me because I wasn't just sort of pasting affirmations on old stories. I was changing my core stories at a root level. And so in a sense, that's the tools I wanna help people to cultivate, that ability not to bypass, not to try to just on the level of the mind and the intellect change our stories, but actually work at the level of our body and our soul and our symbolic language and change the unconscious parts of self that are running stories there that are not in alignment with the life we're dreaming of and liberate our dreaming to come back into relationship with the dreaming of all of life. That was all so beautiful. And I love this notion and practice of engaging our, what I can only call kind of a magical imagination mm -hmm. where all these dreams and perhaps these archetypal source codes that we have completely lost or have been completely overlaid exist at as sources for kind of the infinite possibility of dreaming and magical imagination to manifest whatever it is that we need to make sense within the context of our lives and how to navigate these very unique and complex issues that we each face in our own unique way. And there's no way of looking at anybody else's life or their answers to really necessarily apply to our own, that we have to engage that realm of magical imagination. Or you use the term symbolic language. Talk about how we engage that and how we learn that and where that arises from and why it's so actually natural to us and so important despite our culture's kind of hyper-rationalism and dismissal of imagination and magic in that sort of way. Yeah, well, I love the phrase magical imagination. I think that's definitely something I strive to cultivate in my life. 
Symbolic language, when I use that term, what I mean is the symbols that our body or the felt sense in our inner landscape, that sort of interface between our body and our spirit and our emotions and our mind, uses to communicate with us. And when we talk about the felt sense, it's this knowing that's beyond words that we carry in our body. And it communicates to us through the symbol, which can include physical sensations like a clenching in my gut or a compression in my heart or this like fluttering in my solar plexus. It can also include emotions like deep sadness arising, tears coming and anger flashing up or jealousy seething within us. You know, it can communicate to us through images like an image of a sealed room that you're describing or an image of a younger version of ourselves. It can communicate to us through just intuitive knowing. And so it's our job, I think, as human beings to liberate our imagination, especially human beings living in this time where our imagination is so thoroughly colonized by our culture for many of us. And so one way I find that we can liberate that magical imagination you were talking about is through being willing to engage with and come into relationship with and and interpret our symbolic language. So being willing to sit with questions that we give our inner experience and feel how our inner experience of our body, our felt sense responds to those questions and staying with the response, not turning. I think we're so often trained that if something doesn't come right away, we can't do it or we can't feel it. So we have to just give up. But rather instead, making friends with the unknown, making friends with the subtle, with the indistinct, with the foggy, with that which is at the edge of our current awareness and ability to see and cultivating the ability to stand and sit in the discomfort of that awareness until out of that fog and that fuzziness, new sensations and experiences arise and staying with those experiences and describing them, not labeling them like, oh, I know what this is, this is my dad issues or this is my issues with power, but really just describing it is if you had your eyes closed and were feeling an object in your hands and describing all its qualities. Like I like to use the example, if I have a mug in my hand, I'm not saying it's a mug. If I'm doing this like I want to be with my inner experience, I'm feeling into the smoothness of the size of that mug, the hardness and the slight tinkle it makes when I knock on it with my knuckles, the hollowness in the center and the wetness and warmth there, the slight depression at the bottom of it, how it fits in one hand perfectly. You know, all these different ways I can describe the qualities of what we can bring that same curiosity to our own inner experience. And really imagine pulling up a chair next to an aspect of ourself and being with it exactly as it is, not trying to shift it, not trying to change it, just being with it and giving voice to, finding the words that best describe our experience of it. And through that describing, continually being willing to take the words we use to describe it back to the feeling and sensation in our body and test, is that the best word or is there an even better word? Is that really capturing this feeling my body is sharing with me? Or is there an even more precise word I could use to capture that feeling? And often as we step into this deep, relationship with our inner experience, it begins to share more and more with us symbolically. And over time, we learn to interpret symbols because 
our body and the spirit world are always going to use the simplest language possible to communicate to us, that which is most easy for us to understand given our current awareness and symbol set and understanding. And so if we're willing to come into relationship with our inner symbolic language in that way through listening and describing and interpreting, then our inner symbols becomes more and more easy for us to translate and interpret. And so one sort of missing piece maybe that I'm not saying here also is the importance of action in any journey with our symbolic language. So this comes up a lot more in the context, the practice of shamanic journeying, of going into a trance state, often to a drum, working with helping spirits and asking a question that the entire experience of the journey is the answer to. And so the symbolic language would be everything that we experience during that shamanic journey that we then have to interpret. I like to sometimes tell people like, we're often like shy about interpreting our symbolic language. We don't want to be wrong. We want to be perfect. We don't want to be making things up because we're taught to fear our imagination within structures of white supremacy and colonization and to think of the imagination as something made up or untrustworthy versus much older, you know, indigenous definitions of it, even classical like Greek definitions where the imagination is this vital interface between us and the archetypal realms and the spirit world in our environment. And so to get over those doubts that we often feel around our own imaginal capacity, I find it's really helpful to just tell yourself, okay, if this were on a test, if I had a test that said, here's what happened to this person, what does this mean? And you had to like make up something that it meant, what would you make up? What would you say it meant? How would you interpret what happened or what you saw? And often when people have that framework of a test, where they just have to put an answer, even if it's not quite right, that helps them to get out of their own way. And then through our interpretation, we need to discern what is the action I might take based on this interpretation of this symbolic language of this answer to my question I asked in this journey. And so in taking the action, that's a really vital piece to understanding our symbolic language because when we take an action, then we have to see how our life and our body and our world responds to the action we take. We have to see how our actions actually created traction or didn't create traction in the world in alignment with our interpretation of the answer to our question we asked. And in that way, we can then refine our ability to interpret our symbolic language over time by looking at where did I go sideways? Was it the question I asked? Was it the experience I had? Did I sort of like leave some part out of the experience or like put some blinders on? Was it the interpretation of my experience? Or was it the action I took based on my interpretation? Which felt a little sideways now looking back, now that I see how the world responded to my actions. And in that way, over time, we increase our signal clarity, our ability to sort of receive our symbolic language from our body and from the spirit world, and then can get better and better at just being in conversation with ourselves and the world around us symbolically. Wow, so much in there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I love it. I love it. I mean, so many things came up for me while you were talking about that. And in terms of the action that we can take or that we need to take, it can be very subtle action as well. Because I was remembering probably my most powerful psychedelic journey. At the end of it, I asked for something that I could bring back with me, that I would remember, that I could embody after I came down from that journey. And I was told to just relax. (laughs) And what a powerful, 
powerful message that is. And what I've, yeah. learned, what I've learned over the years is to just relax into this present moment just the way it is. That we don't need to do anything about this exact present moment that we are in. And that if we are in this present moment, everything is possible. All possibility can emerge from that kind of like what you were talking about as this original source code of possibility. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. I so appreciate that. And that's true that the actions are often subtle. You know, sometimes the action is to ask another question like, okay, now I understand this piece and this piece and this piece, but this part of the symbol set really still is really confusing. So I need to go back and zoom in and ask about that particular piece. Or like, okay, I was given this message of just relax. I need to create, my action is going to be creating some kind of power object that holds that truth that I felt in my body of relaxation and how it allows you to feel into the possibilities of the present moment that are infinite. So I'm going to keep that power object on my altar or in my space or carry it around in my pocket, you know, and that's going to be my action. You know, there's all sorts of different actions we can take. It doesn't have to be like, doing some big ritual or going off on some trip or, you know, leaving your job. It's often what I find really creates change is the small, daily, subtle actions that we take that are happening within the current framework of the life that we're living. Not outside of our current life, but within that current life. How do I act in a slightly different way that allows me to show up differently, that creates new possibilities within the framework of my current life as I am now? Mm -hmm. And getting back to the felt sense experience, which is like an active engagement with presence, mm -hmm. when we're trying to address trauma or when we're experiencing trauma or re-experiencing trauma, the kind that we have buried and that we have kind of mercilessly protected ourselves from in the past, it's really hard to stay with our felt sense of that experience. And one of the things that I'm getting from your work is that using tools like shamanic journeying and engaging our magical imagination can give us new ways of approaching that trauma, of staying present with the trauma or engaging it in a way that shifts things, much like the way my perspective in my dream, where if I just looked in a different direction, I saw the way out. Yes, absolutely. I think there's a lot of different ways to think about trauma and define trauma, but I think sometimes we think of trauma as something that happened to us, like something with big capital T traumatic happens to us and then we are left with this thing called trauma, sort of the stain from that experience. And I think of trauma less about what happened to us and more the story that got created about what happened to us. Not just the story of what happened, but the story of life that we learned through that experience and the story we learned about who we have to be to survive based out of that experience. And so that can be big sort of what you might call capital T trauma experiences in terms of certain types of like intense abuse, you know, sexual or physical or emotional intense types of, you know, physical trauma, intense types of war or other things like that. But and those are all real. Obviously, those are trauma. But I think the less obvious trauma that 
often affects us. It's often put under the label of things like, you know, complex PTSD, which for me is a little bit of a strange label that's being used. I think almost all people in contemporary Western culture probably have some form of complex PTSD because to me what it is is about not having initiation into adulthood and so carrying our complex family of origin baggage and survival choices we made to survive living in a culture without initiation into adulthood into our adulthood. And so sort of walking around as an adult with the energetic emotional body in a sense of a child. And you know obviously I'm not a psychologist so I'm not trying to disparage anyone who has that diagnosis of complex PTSD or is using that diagnosis but I just think for me what I have found in my experience that's all I can speak to is that most of us have what you would call complex PTSD in terms of these complex survival patterning inside of us that was cultivated when we were usually much younger to survive that into adulthood now where we often find interfering with our ability to create the life we're trying to create and respond effectively to the present moment without projecting onto the present these experiences we had in the past. And so I think that type of trauma, that type of trauma that gets created when in any moment, often when we're a child but not always, we make a choice out of fear to survive that's out of alignment with our true nature and our authenticity and like what the natural desire of the living process that we are wants to do a part of us gets fragmented and cut off from that larger living process of who we are that's always growing and shifting and changing. It gets kind of stuck in that moment in space and time in that memory of what happened. And whenever we encounter something similar in our life to that moment, we sort of get shunted off into our perspective at that time in our life and see what we're currently experiencing in our life through the lens of that time. And so we end up often unconsciously in that moment, using the same strategies we had to use at that time to survive. And I'm not trying to shame those strategies. Those were vital strategies that are what allows us to be here now. Like there's nothing wrong with us in essence. We're not doing this healing work because we're defective. We're doing this healing work because there's aspects of us that are stuck in old choices we made to survive that were great maybe for that moment because they allowed us to survive them but are no longer in alignment with our current level of consciousness and maturity in our life now. And so for me, one example maybe of this is as a queer man, I had a lot of fear, even with really supportive parents around my queerness, even with going to you know NYU in New York City where I had lots of access to like, you know, peer supporter and LGBT issues. And I think I was even an outspoken, you know, peer educator and like a president of the LGBT Students of Color Club. I still came out of college with a lot of internalized homophobia and fear of queer spaces because I was seeing those spaces through the lens of my traumatic childhood around my queerness. And I remember this one moment so viscerally I was in this gay bar and I saw someone who was really hot, who I really wanted to engage with. And I was with a friend who had asked to come with me because I still felt this deep shyness and fear of being in these spaces that were like fully queer spaces. And I looked at the, I decided to like sort of dare myself to look at this person and kind of almost flirt with them a bit without speaking to them, you know, just making eyes at them across the room. And they looked right back at me and seemed very interested. And in that moment, I felt like I was going to die. 
I felt like I was gonna just collapse. And so I left the bar and I was like literally having a panic attack. Like, like, like it would seem like cute or funny if you're watching it on some romantic comedy or something. But for myself in that moment, I really felt like I was dying. And so I was like, okay, there's something really off here and wrong here that I wasn't even able to see until I was in that space taking that risk. And I used my tools that I had at the time of this process to really go in and track that fear to its root. And what I saw was this me that was still stuck in this old memory of like this thing called the faggot test where like some boy would like lean his shoulder on another boy and if and pretending to like be in camaraderie and friendship and talking with you and if you didn't instantly like brush his arm off your shoulder in a certain allotted period of time you were considered a faggot and and you were gay and so you had to be made fun of and you know, as I said, I was very hypervigilant growing up. I was very aware of social cues. So it was easy for me to just brush off these people off my shoulder and not fall for that trap. But I watched other people be humiliated in this way. And I learned it is not safe to be gay. It is not safe to have desires for men. And so even at that young age, I had to go back into that memory and really show up for the me that felt terrified to be who he was and be in right relationship with his own desire and be desired because he felt like he was going to die if someone saw his desire. And so I really just show up for that part of me and make it safe for him to be who he was and just to feel in relationship with who he was and be able to express that freely and openly. And in doing so, then I had to take an action after I integrated that part of me and like really allowed and emerge back into the fullness of myself and reclaim that relationship with my desire. I had to act on it because the momentum of my old habits and patterns was still there. The old fears were still there. So I had to take, make new choices that would redirect the energy I'd reclaimed from that memory, from that part of me. And so I remember I went out to this bar and I ended up approaching someone who I thought was really hot and asking them out. And we ended up going home together. It was really nice actually. <laughs> and then it turned out into a relationship or anything. It was just some single random event, but it was so powerful and so important for me to realize, oh, actually, because at that point I had been with other men, it wasn't like I was a brand new, but a lot of the people I had been with at that point, I would only approach if I didn't feel like I desired them. If I felt like, oh yeah, maybe they're someone who could desire me, but I don't necessarily desire them, then I would approach them because that felt safe. Because that, like, then my desire wouldn't be seen. So it's so interesting, these like complicated survival strategies that we unconsciously hold that arise out of these past moments of trauma. And so for me, once I was able to clear the root of where that pattern in me started with this fear of my desire being seen, then I was able to actually act on my desire and have much more fulfilling relationships. And what you're describing there is like an example of the process of soul retrieval. So I actually would differentiate this from soul retrieval. I can understand how it seems very similar, especially with me describing the story. But in how I work, soul retrieval, I would say, you can't retrieve your own soul. In classical definitions and understanding of soul retrieval, and, and my understanding as a person who does this work, you know, full time, you can't retrieve your own soul. Sometimes it can spontaneously come back in bits and pieces, but there's no reason that a soul part that left would come back to you on your own without the help of a practitioner because 
we are the ones who abandon our souls and cut off these parts of ourselves to survive. We like in a moment when we're experiencing trauma or some sort of horrific, you know, experience for a long period of time that's sort of like a low-level trauma atmospherically for a long period of time, we might choose to abandon a part of ourselves because it's too painful to feel that part of ourselves and still just be in the world. And so that's how I would define soul loss. That part gets abandoned or a part of us leaves to protect a gift that we have that they feel is being threatened in the current environment we're in. And so there's no reason that that part would trust us enough as who we are to come back because we've spent our life now developing survival strategies to avoid touching into that hole inside of us where the soul loss is. So we need a practitioner to locate that part of us that's stuck somewhere in space and time and bring them back to us and then we can use skills like what I'm talking about to integrate that part and bring it back online. But these parts that I'm talking about in something like the deep liberation process are more about these parts that have been stuck in these moments of pain but that haven't been entirely cut off from us. There's sort of like levels of fragmentation and dissociation. And so where soul loss I see is completely cut off. You can't even access it even using good, you know, inner work tools. You need someone else to bring it back for you. These are the type of fragmented selves that are still there. They're still in your energy body. You can still find them if you're willing to follow your felt sense, but they're stuck in these moments of fragmentation and continuing to make these choices in your life that affect you. Whereas how the soul loss affects you more is just you completely not having access to this authentic part of you. There's not even like a survival strategy there that's linked to the part. It's just like the survival strategies that develop to avoid acknowledging or feeling the fact that there's this big hole inside of you. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. I was taking a bit of a leap there and the soul loss is the extreme version of the disconnection of various parts of ourselves getting lost, whether it's in old past traumas or, or fear of the future. Exactly. Yeah. And obviously there's a relationship there because I find, you know, a lot of practitioners who practice soul retrieval aren't necessarily taught the importance of integration, of unlearning those survival patterns that you develop to avoid touching into that hole inside yourself so the part can fully come back. And because you are the one who made those choices, you are the one who needs to unmake those choices. A practitioner can't unmake those choices for you. And so that's the integration piece after the soul part is back where you can use these skills to really navigate to these moments where you made those choices in your inner landscape and work with them there and reclaim the energy stuck in those old choices to then help that soul part come fully back online. Mm-hmm. And there's a line in the book about how you say the shaman is like the guru or the savior of the world in that it is we ourselves who must embody them and that healing into our own life practice. Because if we see them as being outside of ourselves, that it doesn't work. Yeah, if we see the shaman as the guru or the savior, it doesn't work. Absolutely. Because you have to understand that in an indigenous context, the shaman is not the person who is responsible for tending your spiritual life for you. That everyone in that community is responsible together for tending their own spiritual life and collectively each other's spiritual life. The shaman is who's coming in when things are going really sideways and need a big readjustment and, and people need assistance in seeing what they can't see and seeing into their own blind spots that are natural, just part of being human. 
And that's when the shaman really comes in with their unique genius and the sacrifices they have made to have a level of intimacy and trust with spirit that they can bring in that new information and renegotiate the relationships that have come out of balance for the people and help people to step back into those relationships. But for example, there's this really beautiful saying in the people, the San Bushmen of the Kalahari, where they talk about how when a healer is sick, it's not a sign that that healer is bad or they're not doing enough work, you know, or, oh, look, they're not doing their own process because they're sick. It's a sign that the people haven't been dancing enough, that we are putting too much strain on our shaman, on our healers, that we haven't been dancing enough. We haven't been engaging in our own process enough and entering into our own relationship with spirit enough. And so we're putting this burden on our healer and now they're getting sick. And so my hope is these techniques that I've shared in this book can help people to start to take responsibility for their relationship with their own soul and with life as a teacher, in a sense, not requiring someone to be their mediator or their guide in that relationship, and then really able to approach the times when they do need a mediator, when they do need a guide, in a way that's really true, in a way that they couldn't have done the work on their own, and so that healer can come in and really give them the unique support they're needing that allows them to skyrocket you know, on their course of transformation and really radically change and transform versus just helping assist them with the work they could have already been doing on their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being embodiments of original source code. Exactly. When we get lost. <laughs> yeah, I truly believe it's been not just my belief, it's more than belief. My visceral experience has been that no one is disposable that every single one of us has medicine that is needed to navigate the times we are in effectively. And that if we are going to navigate these times and shift the trajectory that we are on as humanity, each of our medicines are needed. And so we each can take responsibility for that precious, unique flame that we hold that's needed to illuminate the way across to a new world, to a world that is more radically just, radically pleasurable, radically joyful, and radically in right relationship with each other and with all living things. And that's not going to come from any savior that we're waiting for to help us, even not the aliens, not Jesus, not, you know, (laughs) the ascended beings, that it's up to us. It's up to each of us, every single one of us. And It's up to us working both individually, but also in community, in relationship with each other as well, collectively towards a shared vision. That's such an important thing to recognize, despite any past traumas or past misunderstandings or past insecurities, to recognize that we are all essential. We're all integral parts of this universe. And that can be really hard to recognize when we've gone through life feeling that our difference made us feel less than as opposed to our uniqueness being, you know, an essential value of who we are. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's that's the fundamental orientation that we need to all make to look at, you know, as we work to create change in this time around issues of, you know, racial injustice, economic injustice, you know, disability injustice, you know, all sorts of injustice of our time. Just, you know, pick one. There's, you know, 81 flavors of ice cream out there. As we work to create change there, to be willing to look at how am I perpetuating these systems in the ways that I have been in an unjust relationship with myself, in the ways that I have been 
controlling myself, been, you know, incarcerating myself, been abusing myself or, or limiting myself? And how can I step into a more radically compassionate relationship with all of me so that I can then bring that same compassion I'm bringing to myself to my fellow human beings in the world? Mm -hmm. And perhaps we could end with you sharing this wonderful experience you had with a water spirit who had a message for you that you share at the end of the book. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Well, so I was at this retreat with my shamanic community, the Last Mass community, and we were really excited because it was our first time. We were realizing we needed elders. You know, our whole process is about becoming spiritual adults, but we hadn't quite gone past the spiritual adult thing to look at what might it look like to have actual elders in our community. And we had two babies that were born to members of the community that were coming in that we wanted to welcome. And we wanted them to be welcomed with true elders as well. So we were like, how do we make this vision a reality now? How do we not wait for some time in the future to do this, but actually to have elders now? And so we decided to go through this whole process of eldership. We worked with this wonderful man working in the Weechul tradition, Tom Pinkston, who does a lot of work with eldership. And he worked with us and our cosmology and our teachings and our community to really create an eldership process to help some of the members of our community that felt ready to step into true eldership. And we paired each elder with younger members to sort of call their eldership out of them in sort of like a crazy logic way, having the younger, less experienced members holding accountable these elders to step into true eldership because of our need for elders and letting our need pull their gifts and medicine out of them. And I remember approaching this process at that first retreat and just feeling like, I don't know how we're going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know about being an elder. You know, I'm, I was born in a culture without elders. I'm, you know, in my early 30s. You know, I don't know how I'm going to do this. But what I did was ask the water for help to really understand a little bit more about how do we do this well? Like, what is the essence we need to understand if we're going to step into true eldership? And if I'm going to step into this role of support to these beautiful people in my community who have stepped into the vulnerability of trying to step into this role within a broken culture in our community. And I felt the answer to my need, my cry for help rising up from this spirit of this ancient aquifer deep under the ground in the Sonoran Desert where the indigenous peoples had come on pilgrimage for years. It was actually part of this ranch where they still would allow the indigenous peoples to come and make pilgrimage there and greet this water spirit and visit this tree that was there as well. And so I spoke with this deep ancient desert water spirit, deep under the ground, giving life to all these things in the desert. And it shared with me this message that said, drip, drip, drip. Everything starts right here with one drop of water, a waterfall, a roaring river, a rainstorm. It all starts with one falling drop and another and another. Water doesn't stop to ask, will I be loved if I fall off this precipice? Will I be isolated and alone if I emerge from my cool, dark crevice? Will I dry up and die and cease to exist if I leave the soft expanse of the sky and fall to earth? 
Water doesn't stop to worry and wonder. Water simply flows, opens, expresses, moves, down, 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 drip, 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 finding the lowest point, the deepest expression possible, slowly, consistently, drip by drip, giving life to the world. Take the first step, then the next. Trust, open, flow, grow larger. The ocean is waiting. The world needs you. That's so beautiful. And it was a wonderful way to end the book. And it's a wonderful way to end our conversation. Thank you so much. It's been so wonderful talking with you. Oh, it's been such a wonderful pleasure talking with you. My guest has been Langston Kahn. He's a shamanic practitioner specializing in emotional clearing and radical transformation and the author of a wonderful book that's coming out on January 19th, Deep Liberation, Shamanic Tools for Reclaiming Wholeness in a Culture of Trauma. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Tonya. And be well. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. And have a wonderful new year.